Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another edition of Winging It. My name is Nate Rowan of the Rochester Red Wings, and we will talk about the last regular season game at Silver Stadium, which was on August 30th, 1996. We are doing this ahead of WXXI TV airing the final game on Father's Day, June 21st at 1 p.m. They are titling it Last at Bat, and again, you can check that out on WXXI TV at 1 p.m. on Sunday, June 21st. For that discussion, Josh Wetzel, Voice of the Wings, and I talk with Jim Mandalero, who was a longtime beat reporter for the Red Wings, in fact, one of the longest almost as long as anybody in Red Wings history. So we'll talk to Jim about what he remembers about the events leading up to that day, the that day itself, and then kind of what happened afterwards. Uh, Josh also talks with Pete Weber, who was a former Red Wings broadcaster and actually called the game along with Kurt Smith. And so you'll hear Pete's voice during the game, and Josh was able to talk with Pete about what he's been up to, and what he remembers about that day. All right, we got a couple long interviews, so we'll get right into that. And let's start with the interview with Jim Mandalero. Well, you know, we had you on to talk about the final regular season game at Silver Stadium, which is in August of 1996. And we do that ahead of WXXI airing that final game uh, on Sunday. But, you know, to get to that day where the stadium was going to be closed up and it was potentially going to be the final home game and we'll talk about why it didn't end up being the final home game but the process to get there really wasn't an easy one for the team and for the community so when you started the conversations had just began to uh to to start about how were you going to replace silver stadium so take me through what you remember about how that entire process unfolded and how we got to that point in 96. Sure. Um, Frontier Field was literally years in the making, and I'm, I'm not talking about the bricks and mortar. Um, one of my first assignments in 91 when I started covering the team was to meet um, Randy Mobley, the internationally president, at a hotel in downtown Rochester, right on Main Street, um, early morning, um, because he was in town and had some news about Silver Stadium. And we sat down and basically the news wasn't good if, if you love Silver Stadium because he said it just did not meet the new minor league requirements for a stadium. The lighting wasn't good enough. Um, the, a lot of things weren't good enough. The parking wasn't plentiful enough. And its days were numbered. That was 91. Um, but it took a long time. I remember 94, 95, four different sites came out. Uh, Avon was one. Eastview Mall, Victor was one. Um, about a mile from where Frontier Field is was a site. And then near the Liberty Pole was a site. And it took a long time and a lot of politics, a lot of debate uh, to, to get things rolling. So it finally became a reality. And the funny thing is, everybody thought that the last year at Silver was 95. In fact, if you look at the 1995 program, there's an aerial, I think it's a, an artist's rendering. It's a great picture. And it says the final year at Silver. Um, but then... Governor Pataki slashed the funding for the stadium as part of his budget and months went by before the budget was restored and there was no construction during that time. So it became delayed. And what happened was the Red Wings were given a chance to move in the frontier field in July of 96. Of course, 
they couldn't guarantee that they'd be have the stadium ready in July of 96. As it turns out, they did, and the Rhinos moved in. But the Red Wings said, you know, I remember Dan Mason saying, you only get one chance to make a first impression. And they wanted that full season. So in 96, the Rhinos took over Frontier Field from July on, and the Red Wings played at Silver. So you had this brand-new stadium going on, and about five miles away, you had this 68-year-old stadium in its final days. And people were interested in both. I, I went to both because this Frontier Field was so brand new, you felt you, you weren't in Rochester. And Silver Stadium, you realize it's like anything, you're leaving. This is the last time I'm going to be here. This is the last month. So it came down to this um, Friday, August 30th, which is the game they're showing, the final regular season game. And as it turns out, the Rhinos were playing across Frontier Field the same night. The Wings draw more than 12,000 fans, and the Rhinos draw more than 11,000. It was an amazing night for Rochester sports to have two events like that draw almost 24,000 people. But yeah, um, Nate, it it took years of political debate and setbacks, and we used. I remember thinking we'll never get this stadium. So it finally came down to we realized this is it. This is the last regular season game at Silver. And the thing I say that is because the Red Wings were in a playoff race with Scranton for the final spot, and they're they're only a game up. This was the final week. So if they don't make the playoffs, then Friday, August thirtieth, is the last game at Silver. And if they do, then there's playoffs. And, and as it turns out, they did make the playoffs. You're talking about trying to get the stadium built. And I think one of the amazing stories I've heard about that time, and I can't remember which offseason this was uh, right off the top of my head, but the fact that Jeff Manto came back to Rochester, I think in a snowstorm, basically, yeah. and helped uh, help Dan Ma- Mason and probably Joel Tabelli and, and Naomi Silver uh, try to talk to fans and drum up support for a new ballpark. And it's amazing to me that a player – uh, would come back to Rochester and do something like that. I think it really says a lot about Jeff Manto. Well, he's, you know, uh, if he's not my favorite all-time Red Wing, he's in the top three, and he was only here about four months um, in 94, and, and he won the MVP that year. He'd come over from Richmond, but yeah. That, so then he plays in 94. This was in the winter of 95 he comes back. We're still two years away from the Red Wings moving into uh, Frontier Field, but he did. The funding had been delayed, and uh, now it looked like, oh, my God, we might not get the stadium. And Jeff came up with his father from, uh, I think, Langhorne, Pennsylvania, in a snowstorm, and uh, it was called Stadium Stock. And uh, they had a big, big to-do, um, uh, getting everybody out they could to support the stadium. And I think they – I like to think, at least, that they sent a message to the governor because not long after the, the funding was restored. Jim, at the end of 95, you mentioned that the final game that year, they had touted it as the final game at Silver. And we had Marv Foley on, former manager, who actually managed the last two years at Silver and then the, the first uh, couple years at, uh, at Frontier Field. Mm-hmm. And he was saying it was kind of uh, um, Groundhog Day a little bit uh, in 96. Uh, what do you remember about the celebrations in 95 that people really believed that this was going to be the last game at Silver? I remember that it was melancholy, but by the end, I think we knew it wasn't. I don't remember a big fanfare, a big send-off in 95. So I think that we knew because of the delay that it's probably almost certainly not the last time we're going to be at Silver. The big question was, do the Red Wings move in in the summer of 96 at Frontier Field? And I remember they only had 27 games left in July and August. Um 
So they didn't have, I mean, to move your entire, and you guys work there, to move your entire office to a place and sell tickets and set up a ticket uh, uh, shop, um, they just decided, and I, I supported it, let's start fresh uh, in 97. And what happened, though, was the Rhinos really became popular, although I, I really do think, and I'll probably anger some Rhino fans, I think it was the stadium. Um, I mean, I, I would have gone to see a, a rodeo. I mean, I just loved being there. They had the um, good news, Jim. I think there's going to be a rodeo there in August. Well, <laughs> I'm glad there's going to be something there. Um, they had the uh, Nick Tahoe had a stand, had a, a, a garbage plate stand. It was just a place to be. Um, but then in '97, it was special because it was now the Red Wings' turn, um, and of course, they won the Governor's Cup that year, and that was a magical year. But yeah, I think '95, it was like, whoa, th- this is the last season. Oh, well, maybe it's not. And then '96, it was clear that this was the final season. So when they got down to August 30th, it was packed. It was, uh, it was fanfare. It was so nostalgic. Um, they brought back, I mean, they brought back Harry, the hat Walker, uh, who had played and managed in the forties and the fifties, uh, Steve Demeter, the guys from the 71 team. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I was disappointed. They didn't have Bobby Gritch, but I'm sure he was busy doing something because he loves Rochester, Freddie Bean, Jim Fuller, Kurt Moten, um, that, that was the night that Alto's number 26 was retired, the final game at silver. Um, and that was also the night that they announced that Platt street would be renamed Maury silver way. So there was a lot going on and, you know, as it turned out, the Red Wings lost and Scranton won, and now they're one game ahead with a few days to play. So it was this, I remember walking out of the ballpark and you didn't know, is this the last time I'm leaving silver stadium or will I be back next week for the playoffs? And then they, they did make the playoffs. You mentioned them not moving into the stadium in 96. It's interesting because I've always compared the the Rochester Red Wings franchise to the Indianapolis Indians. There are a lot of similarities there. Both franchises are community-owned. Both have won a ton of championships, have had a lot of Hall of Fame players. They both moved from yeah. old ballparks into new downtown ballparks. Joe Altabelli was a great player for both franchises. One difference, though, is the fact that Indianapolis in that same year actually decided in July of 96 that they would move into victory field instead of doing it in game 197. That's interesting that Indianapolis made the kind of the opposite choice. Yes, it is interesting. And there was a lot of debate because you couldn't wait. Once it opened, it was like, it's like having a brand new house and somebody tells you, you can't move in until April. We just wanted to be there. And, and, and instead the rhinos were there for the, for the summer of 96. The the game itself was pretty uneventful. There wasn't um, there wasn't a lot of things that happened in the game that would be shocking or whatever. But the one thing going back through old articles that I noticed is that the the players were appreciative of the fans that had come out, um, but also understanding that there was still a playoff race uh, to to go after. And there was a delay at the beginning of the game because of the ceremonies that took place with all those people that you mentioned and current and former uh, politicians mm-hmm. had shown up and were part of it. Do you remember what the reaction was from players maybe after the game or even a couple days after about just that, that delay and whether that had any impact on the game whatsoever? Privately, a few of them were grumbling, not a lot of them. I think for the most part, I would say that the players felt it was, it was worthy. 
Um, Joel Tabelli was quoted as saying this lady needed a fond farewell. I think the players got it by, by then, because we had built it up so big, they knew that Stan Musial had played there. Bob Gibson had played there. Cal Ripken had played there and it was a big deal. And they knew it was a big deal. It was 23 minute pregame. And it, you know, the, the difference of course, in the, 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 the pregame for the first game at frontier field. And this one was, it was 34 degrees in April of 97 for the first game at Frontier Field, and people are a lot less patient. This was a beautiful night. This is a Friday night. No one had to work the next day. Um, it was it was worthy of it, and um, the the players were concerned. They wanted to make the playoffs. You play that long, you want to make the playoffs. And um, but they, I think they they understood and, and were pretty cool. Uh, and seeing players like that, they were okay with it. When you were kind of wrapping things up at Silver Stadium uh, in 1996, those last couple of months, as you would look around the ballpark, say, at the end of the night after writing your story, were there any things that jumped out that you were thinking to yourself, wow, I'm going to miss that next year at Frontier Field? The Marlboro sign. The house. Because you're you're a big cigarette smoker. I'm a big big smoker. Yeah, my tobacco chewing and all that. But, you know, the houses, you know, with – Frontier Field's beautiful, but you don't you don't you don't see houses. The houses that were so close. I remember going as a kid. I'd be in the back seat, and I just could, I'd see the houses and the light poles of Silver Stadium above the houses, and I knew we were there. Um, it was a neighborhood ballpark, um, and you know, to just to jump ahead. So when they they do lose, I think it was six nights later, they lose Game Two to Columbus. Now that's that's it because they had beaten Pawtucket in the first round. They lose to Columbus in game two. They're down two to nothing. But even if they win the, the, the championship, they can't do it at silver. So it really was the last game at silver. And there was a little bit more than 5,000 people there, which is pretty good for a Governor's Cup game. But I, I, was, I, I believe I was the last person to leave the ballpark, at least to leave the, the stadium proper. Um, wow. And it was weird. It was weird knowing because you knew also that it was you know going to be raised. Um, it was not going to be able to be something I could take my kids to see. It was a weird feeling to look back and say, you know, it was like three lights on in the, in, in the ballpark, um, that that was it. And it was, it was, a. I don't want to say I didn't wish the, the wings hadn't made the playoffs, but it was weird to have that send off in front of 12,000 people. And then six days later, a fraction of that be there for what really was the last game. Um, just weird, the weird, the whole, the way the whole thing turned out. Jim, what was the reaction from other players, opposing teams, managers uh, about Silver uh, in those last few days or last few years? I'm sorry. You know, the the things that they told me were, again, they had read about it. I mean, Silver had been there for seven decades, Um, you know, originally Red Wing Stadium. Um, They were appreciative. I I don't know if they were as eager to have a 23-minute ceremony as even the Red Wing players might be. But they got it. And, you know, if you're playing baseball at that level, usually you're, you're a fan of the game. And to see Harry the Hat Walker and, you know, this is where Babe Ruth and Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle uh, did exhibitions or home run contests. And like I said, all those great players that played there, I think they understood it. It, it, had, it was one of the oldest ballparks at that time. It's, it's so interesting to me. And I, I think uh, coming up in the podcast today when I talked to – to Pete Weber, we talk about this, but Cooper Stadium, uh, which was on its last legs early on in my time in, in Rochester, in Columbus, 
Cooper Stadium and Silver Stadium had basically the exact same blueprint. Exactly. So the, the ballparks were really, really similar. Mm-hmm. It was really kind of weird going there. Oh, and, and that's exactly, you know, so I, I leave, I look behind, bye-bye Silver, that's it. And the next day I'm in a car for, you know, the long trip to Columbus. And, <laughs> and the thing was, it was like, you know, you're driving this long way and you know the chances are they're not going to win this series. So, like, am I going for one day? And, it, and they did lose the next night. And it was a short trip, but you're right. It, it is the blueprint of the stadium. So it was kind of weird to to leave this fabled ballpark and drive eight hours and see another one that looked just like it. So Jim, you you grew up here in the Rochester area and yeah. attended Silver Stadium. And so you know, as a youngster, there were some guys that you idolized or whatever. And uh, take me back through some of your fondest memories as a fan growing up going to Silver. Well, the first time I remember going to about the ballpark was 71. I would have been seven years old, eight years old. And uh, my dad took me. And I just remember, you know, you walked up that ramp, that concrete ramp, and you saw the green, all the green of the field. And that was the year of <clears throat> Gritch and Baylor, Alto's first year managing. That was the legendary Junior World Series team. And I loved them. My brother and I used to sit in the kitchen and listen to Joe Cullinane call the games. I mean, you know, we didn't have 24-hour access to MLB games and all that. So we loved it. And as I grew up, I remember in 81 going to the home opener. And I used to love it. It would be like a Thursday at 1 o'clock. You'd get out of school. Um, and Bobby Bonner and Cal Ripken, I got their autographs on a program that that day, that, that the, the first game. Um just watching the legendary players, I, I never dreamed. The first time I ever covered a game was 88, but that was just filling in for Bill Koenig, the Times Union beat writer. And then it would be another three years before I took over the beat. So I, I would sit there all the time and never dreamed. I'd look up at the press box and just wonder what people were doing up there. And I never dreamed I'd be one of them someday and for just a long period of time. So it, it was great. The Frontier Field press box I know was more comfortable, but – the view from the Silver Stadium press box, I bet, was pretty good. You get a nice breeze coming through there, and it, it certainly provided you with a pretty good vantage point to watch the game anyway, didn't it, Jim? Josh, it was great. Um, I always said that if I could put that view into Frontier Field, we'd have the perfect situation because you were over the field. You were just felt closer. It was it was a great – now, we always worried that it was going to collapse because, you know, <laughs> every time. So my funny story is um, I believe it was the 91 home opener, but I could be wrong, but – Musina's um, pitching and they're playing Pawtucket and Mo Vaughn, who went by Maurice back then, he, so the, the inning, there was an inning break. And of course they had this rickety uh, restroom and I went in the restroom and as I'm in the restroom, I just feel the, the whole building shaking and shaking. And what happened was Mo Vaughn had hit a three run homer off Mike Musina and the Pawtucket broadcasters were going crazy and stomping their feet. <laughs> and I thought I, the, the walls of the bathroom were going to close on me. So I missed that great moment, not great for the Red Wings, but, you know, Maurice Vaughn hitting a three-run homer off Mike Mussina, my, my first week on the beat. So I learned to make my uh, restroom breaks a lot quicker. As the beat writer, do you have any uh, of fond memories of, of covering your games at uh, Silver Stadium? Well, you know, they. I'm trying to think. They didn't win – Manto, of course, just covering Manto. You know what was great? You know, speaking of 96 was, so they signed in early August or late July, Domingo Martinez, uh, who had been signed from the Mexican League. 
he just went crazy in August. Uh, he became his nickname became Senor Swat. Um, I looked up his numbers when they entered the final game at Silver. He was hitting 406 with 37 RBI in 24 games um, and a whole bunch of home runs. I think 10, 12 home runs. He was just a, a sensation. And the other thing, you know, this wasn't as great a moment then as it has become. But Clay Bellinger was a, a great guy. He was one of the stars of the 96 team, along with Joe Hall, both outfielders. And I just remember when Clay brought his son around, it was one-year-old son, and playing with his fingers and saying hi. And he said, this is, this is Cody. And we all know who Cody became. So when he won the MVP last year, that was just a weird thing. And you feel very old that this guy's now this Major League Baseball star. So that was a great moment. And one of the guys that played on the 96 team was Brad Tyler. Uh, this is interesting. He only played for the Red Wings from 94, 95, and 96. He never played in the majors for them. He never played double A. He strictly played for the Red Wings. So I remember hugging him, actually, in Columbus after the sweep, knowing that he was going to sign with somebody else, and he ended up signing with Richmond. But I became pretty close with him. Um so, yeah, I, you know, now some of these guys have, like 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 Clay, they have sons that are playing baseball, and it makes you feel very old. But uh, Silver was just a great place. We didn't appreciate it at the time because we saw some of the other ballparks and how nice they were, but it was a great place to go to a game, and it was a great place to cover a game. And Clay Bellinger was a, a really good player for the Red Wings that year, shortstop, and I, I think until just a few years ago he had the most home runs in a season – for a Red Wing shortstop in a long time, uh, really had a great year, didn't he? He had a great year, and he ends up, I believe he won like three World Series rings between the Yankees and the Angels. He's such a good guy, though. So he's 96, and then 98, he's with the Yankees. Maybe it was 99, but one of those early years of the dynasty. And he sees us, you know, uh, Scott Petoniak and I went down to cover it. He's just like he was at, at Silver Stadium. He wasn't. He's a Yankee at this point. He wasn't big-leaguing us. He was joking on the field. He was the same guy. And I'll tell you who else did that. We went to Cleveland in 97 to talk to Manto. And Manto was uh, was with the Indians at the time. And um, we're talking to him so long on the bench that Jim Tomey opens the door, like, you know, peeks in the dugout and says, hey, Manto, we got to go. We're about to start the game. So these guys were true. You know, Bellinger's a, a great guy. I'm so happy for his son's success. But, yeah, he ended up winning a few rings of his own. You uh, you mentioned Mike Mussina. Did you get a feeling when you saw him come through here that he was going to be as good as he wound up being? Absolutely. I mean, no one can predict the Hall of Famer, I don't think, but he was so dead serious, a student of the game, came from Stanford, smart, you know. I think he graduated in three, three and a half years with an economics degree, a smart guy, cool. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I thought he was great. He only, you know, he only had him for the year, but he's rookie of the year, rookie pitcher of the year, and uh, I might have been pitcher of the year. But he was, he was a great guy to watch. And you mentioned that Maurice Vaughn home run, which you missed, but I've, I've heard that was an absolute rocket. So that makes me wonder, you know, in, in your long time covering the wings, there were there any home runs that maybe stood out as, as among the furthest you'd ever seen of that ballpark? Well. There were, and, you know, I think you and I might have talked about this a few weeks ago, or maybe on social media, but, you know, those balls that go over the uh, left center video board at Frontier Field. I mean, Tony Barron, 
I don't know how he did it because it was 34 degrees on opening night at Frontier Field. Hits a shot over the video board in at, at Frontier Field. And then the great story, of course, is two weeks later, it's like April 24th, 97, Tim Laker's sitting on the bench and he's complaining about the weather because it was cold because it's April in Rochester. And Fred Dalimore, the pitching coach, is sitting next to him and says, listen, you hit a home run over that video board and I'll have your jacket waiting for you when you cross home plate. So, of course, you know what happens. He hits the home run over the video board, and as he's rounding third, he sees Fred, who had this big limp when he walked, coming, you know, this older guy holding his jacket up for him. So those were some shots. Um, yeah, those are the ones that stand out to me. 97 just, you know, it's such, it's such a magical year that really stands out. And it was so awesome on that Sunday evening to see the Red Wings win it at home because all those fans, because you really get the diehards in the Governor's Cup Finals. They were there, and they had gone through all those six years of debate about a stadium, and now this, this team won the championship a year after the final game at Silver. So, Jim, what, what was your favorite part of 97 then, to, to skip ahead to the, the following season? 97, without a doubt, was the night of Hideki Arabu pitched. Um, June 30th, a Monday night the Japanese media descended. I mean, they were, there was like 50 of them and they're all, it was funny. They're all wearing uh, these Derek Jeter, number two Yankee jerseys, which is so you'd never do that. If you cover, you know, if I cover a twins game, I'm not wearing, you know, uh Harmon Killebrew's Jersey or Joe Maurer's Jersey. Um, but they, and Jeter was only a year into his fame, you know, 96 world series. And this is 97. Um it was electric. It was electric. There was 13,000 fans there, and Arabu had been built up as the Nolan Ryan of Japan. And I remember um, P.J. Forbes, you know, singles up the middle to lead off the game, and it, it might have been the loudest I've ever heard Frontier Field. Just the crowd just loved it. And the the Red Wings won that game, although they didn't beat Arabu. He really settled down. They won that game, and they took off. That You talk to anyone from that team, and they'll say that was like the, the jolt they needed. They had been slumping. They had gone back to earth a little bit, like less than 10 games over 500, and they just took off in June or in July after that and went all the way to the championship. Are you hanging in there right now, Jim? You you and everybody healthy in your family? You doing all right? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. I, I miss baseball, of course, and I'm frustrated with the major league players and owners. And uh, I'm glad to see the Red Wings are doing some things. I'll have to try one of those night out at the ballparks for some some dinner at the at the stadium. That's a great idea. And I, I really wish baseball could return to Frontier Field soon because that's an amazing place also. Well, Jim, you you stopped covering the team or you no longer were working for the DNC after the 2014 season. So yep. after that point, what uh, what have you been up to? So I work at the University of Rochester. I'm what's called a communications officer, and I'm basically a writer for communications, and I cover the students. So I just I write about everyone from a kid from Rochester to a kid from China. And the great things they're doing, a lot of them have created companies or um, just are doing great um, benevolent things in the world. And it's a great beat. I love I love the students. They're very intelligent, very nice. I do miss being at the ballpark so much. And it's great that people like you, Nate, and you, Josh, are still there uh, from from when I was there because uh, it, it takes me back. But um, it is nice. It, it's also nice to go to a game and not have to worry about anything because I used to, you know, I'd cover some amazing games, but they would end. We had one game in uh, 97 that the Toledo Rochester game did not start until 10 Oh five. It was a Friday night. 
There was 10,000 people. They didn't want to cancel it. And the game ended at one o'clock. But the way it ended was Toledo scored uh, five runs in the top of the ninth inning to take the lead. And Rochester scored six in the bottom of the ninth. That's a great game to watch. But if you're the beat writer, your, your hairs are turning gray by the minute because I'm on deadline and there was no internet back then. So it's nice to go to a game now and, you know, Hey, if it goes to 12 innings, that's great. That's more, more I can watch the game, but not have to worry about writing on deadline. I'm too old for that. You don't have to worry about being the last person of the ballpark anymore. No, no, I don't. That, that was a weird feeling though, to look back and know you'd never see it again, but it's always in your, it's always in your head. You always have the memories and the photos. Well, Jim, I know that people aren't going to listen to this until Friday. But uh, as we are on this call a couple of minutes ago, John Heyman is reporting that Major League Baseball and the Players Union are closing in on an agreement to play the 2020 season. So what's your initial reaction to uh, to that potential news? I'm happy, but I'm really one that, you know, I, I love the Red Sox. I put it that way. I don't want to win a 48 game season. I just don't, I don't want to carry that asterisk around and, and everyone says, well, that was, you know, that's really the equivalent of a five game NFL season. So I guess, did they say anything, Nate, about how long the season might it, be? It just said it included prorated pay and would include expanded playoffs. That's yeah. according to John Heyman okay. uh, on Twitter. Well, I, I'm happy about it because any baseball is better than no baseball. I hope they come to their senses. It would be a death knell for baseball. Baseball can't go 18 months without being seen. And uh, and I hope I hope they do play. And uh, I don't know what that means for the minors. I don't know if there's any hope, but I, but I, I hope there is. Um, I wouldn't hold my breath there, Jim. No. <laughs> I need to hear Josh, Josh Wetzel. I'll send you a tape of a game or two. That, that would be awesome. I read on, on uh, probably about the same time there that Nate read that, that Rob Manfred and Tony Clark, who's the Players Association yeah. chief, literally just met face-to-face for the first time yesterday. And I understand we got a pandemic going on, but I've been driving down Park Avenue every day, and there's people climbing all over each other with I no know. masks on on Park Avenue. And, and you're telling me they just met for the first time face-to-face yesterday? How insane is that? Well, I should introduce them to this thing called Zoom where you can talk to people and not get any uh, coronavirus. I'm sure they've done that, but I mean, yeah. come on, to be guys. in person, it's, yeah. Oh. Well, I, I'll keep Sit my on opposite sides of the conference table. Let's go. Yeah. Well, Jim, I uh, certainly appreciate the conversation today with Josh and I. Um, you know, so many great stories, and I'm sure you have many, many more. We'll have to have you on again to talk about some of your memories on the beat and just again, can't thank you enough for uh, talking about the final regular season game at Silver Stadium. Thanks, guys. It really brought me back. It was a special time, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the broadcast this weekend. All right. Thanks again to Jim Mandelero for joining the podcast this week. Before we wrap up, a couple things that we want to touch on briefly. Uh, unfortunately, one of the pitchers who was at Silver Stadium, and we mentioned that Silver's closing down the final game will be shown on WXXI this weekend on Father's Day, Sunday. Uh, Mike McCormick passed away this week. And uh, Josh, you did some research on the former Red Wing, and you came up with some interesting tidbits. Uh, can you share what, what you found? Yeah, pretty interesting stuff. Uh, that's been, the, I guess, the one positive of this uh, downtime, Nate, is I've had a chance to go back and fill in some of my knowledge gaps of Red Wing's history. And I, I had heard of him before, of course, but... Uh, didn't know much about him, and and I didn't realize, I guess, that he went straight to the big leagues out of high school. He was 
signed out of high school by the Giants back before the days of the, the draft. And he was a so-called bonus baby. And the deal was, if you signed for a certain amount of money, they had to send you straight to the big league. So that was exactly the same thing that happened with Johnny Antonelli, Rochester's native son, who, when he signed out of what Jefferson High School, went straight to the big leagues. And at that point, he was a well-established major leaguer when McCormick signed to the Giants. But because of the fact that Antonelli went through the same thing, they had McCormick room with him when he was a rookie in the big league. So that was a cool thing, number one. And then he, he got to be pretty good early on in his major league career, but he hurt his arm and the Giants gave up on him. He ended up sign, uh, signing or getting traded to the Orioles prior to 1964. And he spent the entire, almost the entire 1964 regular season with the Red Wings. And that was the first time he had ever been in the minor leagues. And while he was in Rochester, apparently a Rochester doctor, and who this was, I don't know, but a Rochester doctor gave him a cortisone shot, and that kind of fixed him. And late in the season, McCormick got on a great run. He, he was winning game after game after game. And on the final day of the regular season, the Red Wings needed to beat Buffalo to get to the playoffs. And McCormick shut Buffalo out one to nothing, pitched a complete game, and not only did he throw a complete game shutout, but he accounted for the only run of the game with a home run. So, I mean, really one of the, the greatest games probably a, a Red Wings pitcher has ever had, considering all of the circumstances and everything. And uh, he ended up uh, pitching well for the Wings in the playoffs, too. They won the Governor's Cup that year. And then he got called up to the big leagues at the end of the season, spent most of the rest of his career then in the major leagues and actually wound up back with the giants a couple of years later. And in 1967, he won 20 games for San Francisco, won the national league Cy Young award. And he's the first former Red Wing pitcher ever to win a Cy Young award. So uh, kind of a, a cool backstory there on, on Mike McCormick, who just passed away at the age of 81. You're a guy that looks at baseball history and knows a lot about the baseball history. I, I'm obviously not as knowledgeable with some of this stuff as, as you are, but, you know, we were exchanging emails with Ryan Brecker, who's with the Rochester Baseball Historical Society earlier today. And um, you mentioned the cortisone shot. That has to be one of the earliest recorded cortisone shots that was provided to a player, right? I mean, that wasn't I don't very know. common back there. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I know Well, my uncle played minor league baseball, and I know he was getting cortisone shots in the late 50s. Okay. So, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how prevalent that was really. I know my uncle always said they really hurt. <laughs> yeah. Cause they, they, they stick that needle way in there and then kind of move it around as they inject the cortisone to make sure it gets into the, the joints or the muscles just right. Uh, it's, it's not a fun experience from everything I hear. Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, you mentioned Johnny Antonelli, he's from uh, Rochester and, one thing that uh, I noticed this week is the American Association, which is an independent league comprised mostly of teams within the Midwest. Um, they are rolling a plan out to begin play, I believe, July 3rd. And they had their disbursement drafts because the way that they're doing their league this summer is there's 12 teams normally in that league. They're going to cut the league down to six teams and they're going to use three hub cities, Milwaukee, Fargo and Sioux Falls. And so they had a disbursement draft of the players from the six teams that were not included for the other teams to take um, and use on their squads this year. And Rochester's Cito Culver, who the Red Wings saw come through with Scranton Wilkesbury uh, several years ago, 
he was the fifth pick in that draft and uh, he'll be a part of um, that league this summer. And Mason Melotakis, who's a former uh, Red Wings reliever, he was also picked in that draft. So um, baseball slowly coming back. We mentioned uh, earlier with Heyman's report and doesn't seem like a, a deal is, is uh, necessarily eminent, but it sounds like they are certainly close. So that's obviously good news for the sport, Josh. As far as the American Association, Nate, is uh, is Mark Hamburger still pitching for somebody in that league? Do you know? Oh, it caught me off guard. I don't. I actually don't know that he was yeah. uh, for a while. He was actually he's a he's a Minnesota guy. People people loved him in St. Paul when he was with the Saints, and yeah. he had a lot of success with them as well. Um, obviously, a former Red Wing as well. It was. Uh, I had heard his deal with uh, St. Paul, and maybe I'm sharing a story out of school here but i had heard that he had a deal with saint paul where he could basically tell the manager when he was going to be lifted from a game that was part of his deal like no pitch no pitch count yeah just uh, i'll let you know when i want to come out of the game basically well that i don't know i don't know if that's legit or not but that would fit his personality of course it would absolutely uh he was a guy that when i was here in 2015 my first year he was a guy that they had as a reliever. And I remember he was one of those guys, especially because at that point he wasn't a prospect. Um, like he, he had passed his prospect prime or whatever. He, you could throw him every day. Mike Quaddy could throw yep. him whenever. And I know Quaddy did a nice job to limit that, but he knew if, if it was, if he needed some, some pitches, he needed some innings covered that Mark Hamburger would go out and do it. And at the end of that summer, he was lights out. Yeah, he should have gotten called up to the big leagues, in my opinion. And certainly, I couldn't believe that nobody signed him the next offseason because the way he was pitching, you're right, Nate, at the end of that year, there's no doubt in my mind he could have pitched well in the major leagues. He was really, really good. He only had like two bad outings the whole season. If you take those two outings out of the equation, his ERA was very, very low. You know who he reminds me of now that we're talking through this? His season is very reminiscent of Nick Anderson's a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously Anderson Ham- was probably even better, but yeah. You know, I think Hamburger had a game. It actually might have been right before this run started at the end of 15, where I think he gave up like six or seven runs in one yeah, outing. In, in Scranton, as I recall. And then he was just dynamite the rest of the summer. Um, but uh, but yeah, that league is uh, is going to start. Uh, I think July 3rd and a couple of connections to Rochester in that league. So nice to have baseball back. And hopefully, like we mentioned, that Major League Baseball is not too far behind. Well, Josh, uh, thanks for joining this week. Hey, we're going to get to Pete Weber too, right? Oh, yeah. We got to get to Pete. Pete. Yeah, Pete will be next. Pete will be next. Pete will be next. (laughs) He's a a former Red Wings announcer, and then he was down at – he was in Buffalo – and he actually, the game you're going to see in WXXI this weekend, he broadcast that game on the Empire Sports Network with Kurt Smith, just to give you a little and background. He, he's still calling games for the Nashville Predators, right? On the radio, yeah. And, we'll, and Pete and I will talk a, a little bit about that, too. That's awesome. All right, let's so get into go. that interview with Pete. What years were you doing the Red Wings games as the Red Wings broadcaster again? Uh, at 82, 83, 84. Okay. So just to, you, you come back then with the Empire Network to right. do some of these games at Silver Stadium, I guess, including the finale, huh? Yes, and there was a great night as well with Syracuse in town. And Carlos Delgado, I believe, smashed two windshields behind the right field fence at Silver. 
and one of them was so loud uh, it would have it's too bad Milton Rons didn't have glass replacement service too because that would have been absolutely perfect but yeah and by the way Josh just so you know I proposed to my wife in a game at Silver Stadium after we had an afternoon Bison's game and she went with me over to Norton Street and took in the game that night. So this was when you were the Bison's broadcaster, you proposed at Silver when the Bison's yes. were playing the Wings. How did that How did that take place? Well, the Bison's were playing the Wings. We didn't have the uh, overlapping schedule yet. Oh. We had an afternoon game in Buffalo giving me time to get over there for the nighttime. So you, you did a Bison's game in the afternoon and just came to take in the yeah. Red Wings game as a fan? Yes. Wow. So how did you propose? Uh, evidently it worked. I, I don't know. <laughs> was it did just right during the was, game or how did it work? Yes. It? During the game, uh, sitting in the Coca-Cola seats down to the right of home plate and uh, without Mr. Brewer seeing us out in the bleacher section down the left field line and uh, simply proposed. And obviously there was a, a shock factor there for Claudia, <laughs> but she accepted. And here we are 30 plus years later. Did you guys meet in Buffalo? Where did you meet? At the odd, at the odd, when I was doing Sabres Cable, and it was a night in January of 85 uh, before the Sabres played the Quebec Nordiques. So you kind of went to Buffalo straight from Rochester after doing the Wings games for some well, of the was, Sabres was, Bill I, stuff? Yeah, I was uh, commuting my home in Williamsville and, and coming over and uh, working quite a bit with Jay Colley, who, by the way, has recovered from his episode with COVID. And very happy to hear that. And here's a guy who has no idea where he contracted it. Wow. Since he since he sells homes, in addition to traveling with William and Mary, no idea where he got hit. Well, I think he was doing the uh, the CAA basketball tournament. I believe yes. they had some officials at that tournament that contracted it. So I wonder if it happened there. Could have. I don't know. Could have been. Yeah, yeah could have been. Maybe they bought him dinner, you know. <laughs> so. You did games with Jay Colley, and I know Jay a little bit. In fact, I saw him back uh, during the basketball season when University of Buffalo hosted William and Mary. And okay. Jay, Jay is a funny guy. You're a funny guy. I mean, similar personalities. I feel like in in ways, those must have been some uh, some hilarious broadcasts. I would I, I would guess maybe you could get off topic a little bit occasionally during those Wings games. Only on a very frequent occasion, uh, and also with this for some of that time was the man who's going to retire his voice of the Tampa Bay Lightning on television, Rick Peckham. So we really got into some interesting discussions. And uh, for the most part, Jay was just trying to make sure the nachos were still coming while those games he was working with Rick and myself. What was it like broadcasting games at Silver Stadium on that? I mean, I was never there, but seeing pictures that that press box perched on the front of the roof, it sounded like it was almost somewhat dangerous even to navigate your way up there. It was dangerous if you had oversized equipment, which many of us tended to have uh, in those days, Comrex units and so on, big equipment cases, because it was an iron circular staircase to get from the top of the upper deck, uh, the top of the upper stands to go up to the upper deck. So it could really be a jigsaw trying to negotiate your way in there. But once up there, never a problem. But then again, I always kind of liked heights. Uh, my dad was an architect and I would go with him and ride up on girders when he was uh, supervising construction of his various design projects. So it didn't bother me at all. But you know, some of the most fun we had at Silver, we would set up maybe one night a week 
uh, in the stands behind home plate. And uh, those were great, great times. And what, did you run the cable up to the press box? How did you do that? We, we, we dropped it down, dropped okay. it down, and then, and then tagged on in. So many things were done there. Um, let me see. Uh, Sean McDonough and I, uh, he was doing Syracuse at the time. Jay was away for something. And so we had two teams, seventh and eighth place. They were going to go no place. And this is toward the end of August. So we just tied our mixers together and did a co-broadcast for the two marketplaces. Makes sense. So I've seen a picture of you actually, and I don't know how often you did this, but in Buffalo, after the new ballpark was built, you doing a game from the roof of then Pilot Field. So that that vantage point maybe was somewhat similar, huh? Very similar. Uh, Maybe uh, not quite as comfortable at Pilot Field then than it was at Silver because uh, to go to the restroom facilities, had to climb down a long ladder. And uh, so he had to do some planning. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Though one night, um, somebody was driving by the ballpark in Buffalo and called my wife and said, I see your husband walking on the roof of the ballpark. Is he supposed to be doing that? (laughs) What did she say? She said, he does it all the time. Don't worry. Now, Pete, uh, you did the, the final TV broadcast at Silver Stadium for Empire. And I know there had been some renovations between your time as a Red Wings broadcaster and then had the press box improved by that point. What were the, the ballpark renovations like at Silver? It was greatly improved. Well, as a matter of fact, the, the booth where we did the telecast did not exist uh, when I first started going to Silver Stadium. So this is, you know, a passage of what, 12, 13, 14 years or something along those lines. So that was comfortable. There were restroom facilities right behind in it. Uh, and we could uh, still jive back and forth with Fred Costello and uh, have a little have a little fun with him as we were doing the games. Does, it was a great place. Does it amaze you that Fred is still playing the organ at Red Wings games? Yes, it does. He reminds me so much of the longtime organist for the uh, Boston Red Sox and the Boston Bruins, John Kiley, who, uh, so I think Fred has actually exceeded him a number of years now in doing all that. He, uh, he has the spirit. There's no question about that. He has the spirit. You mentioned you, uh, proposed to your wife at Silver Stadium. You also broadcast an on-field wedding at Silver Stadium. I see that. uh, Yeah, I see that picture of it outside my booth uh, every day at Frontier Field with the the players lined up, their bats held in the air. Uh, tell your great story about the Tim Derryberry wedding between games of a doubleheader. Yeah, so he came up in game two in the seventh inning uh, as a pinch hitter. And he was out on three pitches. And I just couldn't help but comment. I said, I think that'll be the last time he strikes out tonight. And uh, I don't have confirmation on that but I think I have reasonable suspicion that it was. And it sounded like his, his wedding or his marriage actually lasted only about as long as that double header, as it turned out. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, but that was, uh, and you know something I've been to, I, in my early years, I was part of so many weddings in ballparks. I have the Red Wings had any since you've been doing the games? Uh, not with a player. You know, there have okay. been some on-field weddings that have involved fans uh, but more typically on off days. There have been several on off days uh, okay. or when the team was out of town, but actually before a game, uh, that's been a more rare event. And I have not seen a player 
get married on the field, uh, as far as I can remember. I, I do remember in 1999, when I was doing games in the Carolina League, the groundskeeper in Myrtle Beach got married on the field. And then uh, during the game, you know, when they dragged the infield, he actually yeah. dragged the infield on a little, uh, you know, lawnmower type thing with his new bride right behind him on the lawnmower. Style. Yeah. You can't beat style. No. I love that. Now, Pete, uh, you, you wound up in Buffalo, and then you did the Bisons games when uh, Pilot Field first opened up, right? Uh, so, you know, you, you were there at Silver Stadium when minor league baseball was still filled with all those classic old ballparks. And then Pilot Field kind of ushered in the era of the new ballparks, of which kind of Frontier Field is a part of. That was, uh, that was quite a big change, a big, a big deal in minor league baseball. Huge change. And it was one I'll never forget as they were preparing to replace Comiskey Park in Chicago, Eddie Einhorn came out to uh, tour his way through then Pilot Field to see what they were doing. I think his ballpark on the south side of Chicago probably got a little bit too modern when you consider right afterward. Uh, Oriole Park at Camden Yards opened up, and that's, I think, still one of the prettiest parks in the big leagues. But yes, the old ballpark going into Toledo and sitting up in that phone booth up in the sky uh, that you had uh, out at the fairgrounds. Let's see where else. Well, uh, and now brand new in Columbus. Where is it brand new? I mean, when we went to Louisville, we were very similar to both War Memorial Stadium in Buffalo and Silver with hanging out over the field behind home plate. Uh, Nashville obviously has a new ballpark now six years ago. It has been uh, something special. It was time. I, I don't think there's any question but that it was time, and I really liked the way they had renovated Silver beforehand in the early 90s and at least modernized it to get it ready and maybe get the fans ready for a transition, too. You brought up Columbus. Cooper Stadium and uh, Silver Stadium were actually built both by the Cardinals at about the same time. They were very nearly identical when they first opened. Now, both places renovated Cooper yeah. Stadium had a lot more amenities by the time it finally closed, but they were originally very, very similar ballparks. That's because Branch Rickey was very frugal. He ran the Cardinals, and it was the same set of blueprints for both ballparks. So just get it. I know they didn't go to FedEx office to get them copied, but that's essentially what they did. And that perch from right above home plate, you know, I, I broadcast games there in Columbus, so that had to be similar to Silver Stadium. It, was that good training for some of these hockey press boxes you're in now, which kind of dangle over the ice? I wish they more of them did, Josh. There are so many. We are so far back in Edmonton, brand new building in Canada, three years old. And what do they do? They put us as high as we can go, far against the back wall as we can possibly go. And it's so bad that even Hockey Night in Canada refuses to use their <clears throat> assigned booth up there. They take over a suite down below so they can actually see what's going on. Wow. Some of these buildings, it's sort of like uh, Star Wars. It's uh, a galaxy far, far away. What is the best arena in the National Hockey League for broadcasters? Probably right now, Little Caesars Arena in Detroit. When, and what a transition that was from the Joe, where they never thought about a, a, a press box area when they opened that up in 1980. And I had been with the LA Kings where we would go into the, uh, go into the old building there uh, uh, in 1979. And then all of a sudden we go way to the top and we are so isolated from everything else. But hey, uh, you learn and they know, you know, the, the, what we would consider 
ideal seating situations are also considered that for the people who will pay for suites. So who wins that battle? Yeah, the, not the broadcasters, I can tell you that no. much. No. So so what's next for you, Pete, with the Predators? You guys are going to get ramped up here pretty soon, right? Yes, uh, training camp. As a matter of fact, the league just came out with that earlier today. So training camps will open up on the 10th of July. Uh, I think for the most part, except for maybe some cities where they don't have clearances, I think for the most part, the teams will be practicing uh, their training camp period at home and then moving to the still undetermined one of two uh, sites where the, the whole division or a whole uh, bevy of teams, 12 from the West, 12 from the East, will be sort of in a bubble and then play things down from six, you know, get down to 16 teams from 24 and then best of seven series till they get to the cup. And you'll be likely calling games off a monitor, right? Yes. I'll, I might even be in this very room really calling games off a monitor. So uh, I've, I've got my Comrex access here. And so we'll be ready to go. Well, Pete, thanks for taking some time with us today on the winging it podcast. We appreciate it. Stay safe the rest of the way. And uh, good luck the remainder of the hockey season with the Preds. Josh, thank you. And whoever would have thought we would be talking here in June about a hockey season about to start next month. Never before. I hope never again. All right. Well, we want to thank Pete Weber, Jim Mandalero, and of course, Josh Wetzel for joining the podcast this week. Uh, again, if you have any suggestions on who we should talk to, please make sure to send them to info at redwingsbaseball.com. You can hit us up on our social media channels as well at Rock Red Wings, ROC Red Wings. And as always, the team store remains open at redwingsbaseball.com. A lot of new merchandise. And if you're interested, it does appear that we are going to continue the dinner on the diamond promotion where fans can reserve a table and eat dinner with ballpark food on uh, the plane surface, the warning track at Frontier Field. It was a good first weekend last weekend, and we have four dates this weekend. Um, so while I'm not, I'm not sure that there is a table available for this weekend, it is something that we will look to continue to do. So keep an eye on our social media channels and redwingsbaseball.com for updated information. Josh, thanks for uh, talking this week. You got it, Nate. All right, guys, we will talk to you next time on the next edition of Winging It. Let's all give our-